Today's episode is sponsored by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affects your life. If you're a regular listener of Best of the Left, you've probably already heard the show before and their great host, Jimmy Williams. He's worked in politics and as a lobbyist, so he knows his stuff inside and out, and now he's taking all of that experience and he's explaining how things really work in Washington. One of their most recent episodes explores the effects of constant lies on one's brain and how to deal with it and not a moment too soon. Check it out. I certainly do, and I think you're going to love it. That's Decode DC, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Bradcast, The Trumpcast, Democracy Now!, The Majority Report, Counterspin, and Intercepted. Protests at airports and elsewhere around the country in response to Donald Trump's late Friday executive order banning immigration and otherwise unlawful travel from seven majority Muslim countries continues at this hour. The order, which uh, came as we finished up Friday's show, it has been reverberating across the nation and the world ever since. Uh, it began by invoking uh, 9-11. It invoked 9-11 three times, this executive order did. Of course, the 9-11 hijackers were from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Lebanon. None of those countries are included in this executive order ban uh, that happened on Friday. So this uh, ban said to be necessary because of 9-11. Uh, actually, uh, none of the home countries of the 9-11 hijackers are included. Moreover, none of the terror attacks or attempted terror attacks in the U.S. since 9-11 and including 9-11 were actually carried out by uh, foreign nationals uh, or those who were born or, or even visited any of the countries listed in this ban. None of the, for example, none of the perpetrators of the Orlando or San Bernardino uh, massacres or the Boston Marathon attacks. Uh, none of them uh, were f were from or had traveled to any of the countries covered by uh, Trump's executive order. So now here we are as an unknown number of permanent U.S. residents and many others already approved for lawful visas are either being detained in airports without access to attorneys uh, or are otherwise being sent away or kept from traveling here at all by airports around the world. The hypocrisy and the lawlessness of Trump's order, frankly, is far more disturbing than it even initially appears on a whole bunch of levels. I'll try to get to some of those levels here today uh, and with my guest shortly, uh, whose organization has just filed a federal lawsuit, the largest federal lawsuit to date, just hours ago in Washington, D.C., uh, on Monday, in hopes of blocking the entire executive order. In the meantime, uh, just one of the reasons that all of this is much worse than it even appears so far, uh, it was, was documented by Betsy Woodruff at the Daily Beast uh, late on Sunday night. Uh, let me read from this. She says, Customs and Border Protection, that's CBP, the federal agency tasked with keeping people from entering the U.S. illegally, successfully deflected a federal judge's court order on Sunday and stonewalled three members of Congress in a display of executive branch muscle. The night before, on Saturday, Judge uh, Leonie Brinkema 
ordered CBP officials at the airport to let lawyers have access to legal permanent residents of the U.S. who were detained because of Trump's travel ban. It was a court order from a federal judge, which meant it was enforceable by federal law enforcement. But immigration lawyers at Dulles International Airport in Washington, D.C., said it did not get uh, adequately enforced at the airport and uh, instead, the CBP kept, CBP kept uh, uh, the, uh, the detainees at Dulles for unspecified period of time. And it still is not public how many lawful American residents were held there and for how long and kept from having face-to-face conversations with attorneys. Instead, immigration attorneys told the Daily Beast that they had learned detainees were provided with a copy of Judge Brinkema's order and a paper listing contact information for pro bono immigration attorneys based in Northern Virginia. That even while we had all of these attorneys uh, at the airport ready to speak with these people. It isn't clear if those attorneys uh, in Northern Virginia that they were referred to were even on call on Sunday. It isn't clear if all the detainees had access to phones while they were being held. And it isn't clear why CBP barred the numerous volunteer immigration attorneys that were on hand at the airports from talking to the uh, talking in person with the people being held. Uh, the the need for attorneys has obviously been urgent. Slate reported that at least two of the detainees, a 19-year-old and a 21-year-old, both citizens of Yemen, signed away their green cards while they were in detention without access to, uh, to attorneys. It was the worst nightmare, Daily Beast says, for the volunteer lawyers at Dulles. The CBP would be able to nab a public relations win by releasing detainees, but without the public realizing that the that the agency may have bullied some of those detainees into ceding their rights to live in the U.S. Brickman's order, the judge, um, the, the judge's order in this particular case was just a few lines long. It directed CBP to, quote, permit lawyers access to all legal permanent residents being detained at Dulles International Airport. Some uh, some of the attorneys at the airport want CBP to be held in contempt of court. Hassan Ahmad, an immigration attorney at the airport with the HMA law firm in McLean, Virginia, said, we still haven't talked to a client, and that is proving serious constitutional problems for access to counsel. Rights are being violated. Officials with the CPB were quarantined away from the public the entire time that Betsy Woodruff says she was at Dulles. She was there for a whole bunch of hours. Uh, on uh, on Saturday and on Sunday, lawyers and police officers said the officials were squirreled away in a room down a hall blocked off by police when Senator Cory Booker, U.S. Senator, visited Dulles on Saturday night. He got past the police and down the hall, but a well-placed source told the Daily Beast that the officials refused to see him. The officials from CBP refused to see him, instead passing notes back and forth about their understanding of the judge's order. Three Democratic members of Congress uh, all tried to get police officers to let them go back and talk to the officials. Uh, this uh, an interchange was caught on uh, on video at, over at Huffington Post, which reports the virtually unprecedented sight of members of the legislative branch of the U.S. government trying with little success to enforce orders from the judicial branch 
against the will of the executive branch, and which has already uh, prompted some to suggest that Trump's executive order is sparking a constitutional crisis. The members did not get to talk to anyone from the agency at Dulles, and the lawyers didn't talk to anyone who was being detained. The agency had gone to extraordinary lengths to stiff-arm attorneys, according to Brian Murray, an immigration attorney based in Fairfax, Virginia. He added that uh, the attorneys looking to get CBP held in contempt could have trouble making the case in court if the agency blocks them from learning the names of the people who were being detained, and thus... Uh, being detained without rights to an attorney. It is so effed up, he said. Except he didn't say effed. Uh, yeah, really effed up. This is this is extremely effed up. This is incredibly <laughs> chilling that law enforcement will defy the judicial branch orders on behalf of the yep. executive branch. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security, you know, they've got broad jurisdiction over pretty much all of our lives. And to have them potentially be turned toward mm-hmm. a tool of the administration against Americans and legal American residents is 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 very chilling. This is uh, I don't know b- where beyond this goes. chilling. Nobody yeah. knows where it goes. Nobody knows where it goes. I guess this is what it looks like when America is great again on Sunday. Uh, Just two days after being sworn in, 45 percent of respondents in a uh, daily tracking poll by uh, uh, by Gallup, uh, 45 percent of respondents said they disapproved of Trump's job performance and 45 percent approved. That was two days after he was sworn in. By Friday, just five days later, the percentage who disapproved of Donald Trump uh, rose to 50% and the percentage who approved dipped to 42%. And I should note that was by Friday, an eight point drop in his first week in office on Friday before this executive order came out. He is now uh, at 42% approval rating, uh, an historic low uh, for an incoming president like this, according to this uh, Gallup survey. Of course, we covered uh, other surveys who found uh, similar numbers. Uh, Quinnipiac survey last Thursday, again, before the order, said that 45% of respondents um, disapproved of his handling of the presidency thus far. Only 36 percent in that uh, in that poll approved of what Donald Trump was doing. But you know who does approve of what Donald Trump is doing? According to The Washington Post, jihadist groups on Sunday celebrated the Trump's administration ban on travel from seven Muslim majority countries, saying the new policy validates their claim that the U.S. is at war with Islam. Comments posted to pro-Islamic State, uh, pro-ISIS social media accounts predicted that Trump's executive order would persuade American Muslims to side with the extremists. One posting hailed the U.S. president as, quote, the best caller to Islam. While others predicted that Trump would soon launch a new war in the Middle East. Uh, Islamic State leader uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, quote, uh, has the right to come out and inform Trump that banning Muslims from entering America is a blessed ban, said one posting to a pro-ISIS channel on Telegram. The writer compared the executive order to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, which Islamic militant leaders at the time hailed as a blessing, as a blessed invasion that ignited anti-Western fervor across the Islamic world. 
Several postings also suggested that Trump was fulfilling the predictions of Anwar al-Awlaki, the American-born al-Qaeda leader uh, and, and preacher who famously said that the West would eventually turn against its Muslim citizens. Al-Awlaki was, uh, was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Yemen in 2011. Another uh, another poster uh, beneath the banner of Alaki uh, and and his quote about uh, the West would eventually turn against its Muslim citizens said when U.S. Donald Trump, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump says we don't want them here and bans the Muslim immigrants from Muslim countries there is one thing that comes to our mind. Citing the Alaki uh, quote. Another posting on Telegram, uh, this same channel, said that Trump's actions clearly revealed the truth and harsh reality behind the American government's hatred towards Muslims. Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> this is uh, th- this is exactly uh, Donald Trump is fulfilling the dreams of the jihadists. He's also the dreams of ISIS. He's also fulfilling the dreams of Osama bin Laden. Remember when bin Laden said all those years ago before perpetrating 9-11 that his goal was to get the United States to turn upon itself and rip itself apart from the inside. Hey, we're doing great in that regard, aren't we? Good job. Uh, Robert uh, Richer, a 35-year CIA veteran and former chief of the agency's Near East Division, said that this ban was, quote, a tragic mistake that could further that could undermine future efforts to recruit spies and collect vital information about terrorists and their plans. How, he asked, can CIA officers persuade Iraqi and Syrian nationals to risk their lives to help the United States? This was a win for jihadists and other anti-U.S. forces. Uh, said Richard, who was uh, he was the deputy chief of the agency's operations directorate during the George W. Bush administration. He says this fuels the belief out there that Americans are anti-Islam. Otherwise, it accomplishes nothing because the ones we are most concerned about can still get into the U.S. How effective is a ban like this as a counterterrorism or, or police measure? Well, I think that it's not just ineffective. It could have and will have, I think, perverse results. Probably the only good thing about this whole imbroglio is that it gives me a chance to come on shows like this and explain what the current refugee resettlement system is. Remember, America has the most severe and watertight refugee vetting system in the world by the blessings of geography. You can't get to America from Somalia or from Afghanistan or from Syria. It's literally uh, watertight, salt water. Well, exactly. And it's harder to get to the U.S. as a refugee than any other route. The refugee resettlement vetting process takes 12 to 18 months on average, up to 36 months for some. It involves the CIA, 12 other departments of state, biometric testing. It's a very tough and secure process, and that probably explains why there have been no acts of domestic terrorism on U.S. soil by refugees. And I think it's very important to make that clear that the policy is founded on this myth. But secondly, and very importantly, 
the message that is sent by this executive order actually drags down the battle against extremism rather than helping it. Let me just explain why. There is no greater propaganda gift for ISIS and al-Qaeda than to be able to say to Muslims around the world, look, the Western world, led by the United States, are turning their backs on you. Because the battle against extremism is a battle of ideas, not just a battle of military precision weapons. And we are, the Western world faces not just organizations that are trying to do damage, but movements. And decapitating the head doesn't mean that you end the movement. And the movement has to be taken on at the level of ideas. And the, one of the troubles with this executive order is it sends such a debilitating message for all the words that have been spoken about American or Western commitment to an openness to all faiths and uh, creeds and colors. You focus a lot, uh, understandably, on Syria and the huge numbers of Syrians flooding in or, or aiming to flood into places in Europe, and particularly in Greece, the epicenter of the crisis. How did this executive order play abroad? Has it already engendered both fear on the one hand and potential propaganda on the other? Well, I think that it's engendered fear among refugees and horror isn't quite the right word, but um, head-shaking amongst governments and officials in advanced industrialized countries. It, just to repeat, a lot of refugees have come through Greece in 2015, about um, 500,000. We've got operations uh, there. Um, about 800,000 ended up in uh, asylum claimants, ended up in Germany and Northern Europe in 2015. There are still 45,000 people stuck in Greece in appalling circumstances where we're providing water and sanitation and other basic uh, support. So it's true that uh, amongst European governments there's been a reaction. But remember, most refugees are not in Europe or in the United States. Most refugees are in countries like Turkey, 2.7 million refugees. Countries like Lebanon, 1.6 million refugees. Countries like Kenya, 500 or 600,000 Somali refugees. Most of our work is actually in Africa. I mean, the, the Middle East is about 25% of our world, just for the benefit of your listeners. Very there important. There are 25 million refugees around the world, a world record, as well as 40 million people internally displaced by conflict. This is not people who are fleeing for economic reasons, economic immigrants, or sometimes called migrants. I don't really like the word migrants, but economic immigrants. I'm talking about 25 million refugees, 40 million internally displaced, who are homeless because of political violence because of war and conflict. Of those people, the numbers more or less are that fully 40 or 50% are in Africa across 17 African countries. And that's where most of our work is. But that you have got 5 million refugees from the Syria crisis out of the 25 million. There are still probably 2 million African refugees in Pakistan. So uh, this is a, a global crisis that in a more interconnected world is tumbling onto the shores of Europe. And I think that it's very, very important to recognize that if we as wealthy Western liberal democracies do not have effective humanitarian aid programs and refugee resettlement programs that address at least the symptoms of these problems, then the problems will come to us. And that's what Europeans have been dealing with. And that's another reason why they are so appalled by the example that America has set, because what this does is it empowers or supports or gives sucker some of the far-right movements in Europe. Well, that that brings me to this question. If it's grossly immoral, I mean, you wonder if Trump, President Trump, and his 
what they call the, his unholy trinity, the men around him, have seen the photographs of Syria or the, the effort to get into Greece. Um, if this is not an effective policy, and years ago, NSEERS also not an effective policy for catching terrorists, and it's immoral, why? Why? What kind, I mean, do you see simple white supremacy in a policy like this? That's not where I would go immediately. I think that there is a lot of fear about what uh, terrorism means. Remember, for our parents or our grandparents' generation, uh, the chances of being killed in conflict were involved uh, volunteering or being conscripted for armies and being caught up in a, or being participant in a conventional war. And of course, the chances of you or I being caught up in that are much diminished. We're living in a very peaceful time when it comes to the chance of wars between nations. Thankfully, there are far fewer wars between nations. One of the reasons to support the liberal international order that's been established since 1945 is that it has reduced war between nations. However, uh, civilian casualties have gone up because of global terrorism. And I think that there is um, obviously uh, an additional element that the terrorism emanates from uh, the Islamic world, or at least parts of it, and that's become part of this narrative. However, I think there's also um, a very important point that the refugee debate and the immigration debate get confused. And in my experience, uh, this happened in the UK in the 90s, it's happened in Europe over the last 10 years, when questions of immigration and questions of refugees get confused, you end up with very bad policy outcomes. And the reason is quite important. Refugees and immigrants bring forth different value judgments because refugees, the definition of refugee is someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution. In other words, they are being forced from their homes. Someone who is an immigrant, an economic immigrant, is leaving in order to seek a better life, not to save their lives. Mm -hmm. Now, I say it does, it's not that one is good or, but one, or that the other is bad. It's that they're different. And they obviously evoke different value uh, judgments because uh, the element of need in the refugee case is different than in the immigration uh, case. And I think it's very important not to somehow establish a ranking, but to understand the difference. And what's happening, it seems to me, in the executive order and in much of the political debate is that issues of refugees and issues of immigrants are getting confused. And that, I think, is at the root of some of the myth-making that's gone on around this issue. Today's episode is sponsored by Wonder Capital, the Colorado-based investment company that lets you make money and fight climate change at the same time. The solar market is exploding right now. The long-term cost savings of going solar are huge, but there's still the upfront installation costs that prevent some companies and organizations from taking the plunge. That's where Wonder Capital comes in. They're an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. to bridge that financing gap and earn up to 8.5% return annually in the process. And don't worry, you don't have to be a solar expert. Wonder has done all of the heavy lifting for you. Their investment funds are fully managed and already diversified. And best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees 
for investing your money. At the moment, they can only accept accredited investors, but they're working hard and coordinating with the SEC to open up a new fund that's available to everyone. So go ahead and create an account for free to get started or get waitlisted for that upcoming opportunity at wondercapital.com slash left. That's wonder spelled with a U, wondercapital.com slash left. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. President Donald Trump fired acting Attorney General Sally Yates on Monday night, just hours after she announced the Justice Department would not defend Trump's executive order, temporarily banning all refugees as well as citizens from seven Muslim majority nations. Yates had written a memo saying, quote, I am responsible for ensuring that the positions we take in court remain consistent with this institution's solemn obligation to always seek justice and stand for what is right. I am not convinced that the defense of the executive order is consistent with these responsibilities, nor am I convinced that the executive order is lawful. Yates had served in the Justice Department for 27 years. The White House issued a statement last night reading, The acting attorney general, Sally Yates, has betrayed the Department of Justice by refusing to enforce a legal order designed to protect the citizens of the United States, unquote. It went on to say, Ms. Yates is an Obama administration appointee who's weak on borders and very weak on illegal immigration. It's time to get serious about protecting our country, unquote. President Trump had asked Yates to serve as acting attorney general until the Senate confirms Senator Jeff Sessions, a close ally of Trump. Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer of New York praised Sally Yates for speaking out. So, Mr. President, we've had a number, a large number of eloquent speeches about the president's executive order. And while they were going on, of course, we had a Monday night massacre. Sally Yates, a person of great integrity— who follows the law, was fired by the president. She was fired because she would not enact, pursue the executive order on the belief that it was illegal, perhaps unconstitutional. It was a profile in courage. It was a brave act and a right act. And I hope the president and his people who were in the White House learned something from this. How can you run a country like this? How can you take a major order, major doing, and not check it out with your Homeland Security sec Secretary, with the Justice Department and the Attorney General? I would say, Mr. President, if this continues, this country has big trouble. We cannot have a Twitter presidency. President Trump is also facing growing dissent within the State Department over his executive order. Hundreds of diplomats and other State Department officials have signed on to an internal memo saying the order will not make the country safer and runs counter to core American values. At a briefing on Monday, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer dismissed the criticism. Government official, anyone who doesn't understand the president's goal in this. And, and what this actually was. Again, I think this has been blown way out of proportion and exaggerated 
Again, you talk about in a 24-hour period, 325,000 people from other countries flew in through our airports, and we're talking about 109 people. From seven countries that the Obama administration identified, and these career bureaucrats have a problem with it, I think that they should either get with the program or they can go. Many commentators have compared Trump's dismissal of acting Attorney General Sally Yates to the infamous Saturday Night Massacre in 1973 when then-Attorney General Elliot Richardson and his deputy resigned after President Richard Nixon ordered Richardson to fire the special prosecutor investigating the Watergate scandal. God in his infinite wisdom put Richard Nixon on this earth to bring to us his heritage, one of priceless worth. His heritage is from heaven. And the magic from above The rapture of music and melody Of culture and of love I want to start with this myth going around perpetrated by Trump supporters in retreat and then other moronic quarters of the interwebs that this ban was a function of an Obama ban from these seven countries. First off, what they're referring to are 2016 Department of Homeland Security regulations. Um that became a bill, uh, I guess, or uh, that were interpreted from a bill, the Visa Waiver Program Improvement and Terrorist Travel Protection Act of 2015. Uh, that was a, a separate bill that never made it out of the House, but whose, um, but the elements of which were rolled into an omnibus budget that Obama signed. But putting that aside for a fact that it was a Republican proposed bill in a Republican passed budget bill that Obama could have sank the whole budget bill if he wanted to prevent that one part of it. What that provision is was a modification of the VWP provisions that exist. The VWP are the visa waiver provisions, which apply to some 30, maybe 38 countries. I don't know, 34, 38, I can't remember. Mostly European countries and Japan. And it basically says... You don't need a visa to come into the United States. You just need to show your passport when you get to customs. The seven countries that were named in Trump's immigration ban, that is apparently not an immigration ban, according to them,
basically in the it were were exceptions to the visa waiver protection plan or program i should say visa waiver program so in other words if you came from one of those 34 countries and went directly to the united states you didn't need a visa if for some reason you went first to one of these seven countries and then were headed to the united states you needed to get a visa. That's it. You're not prevented from entering. You are, I guess, there's an increase in scrutiny insofar as you got to get a visa. I can't remember off the top of my head how many countries that Americans need to get visas for to, to go to. I know, like, maybe... Yes, in other Asian country, uh, Asian countries, maybe mainland. Uh, I feel like I had to get a visa to go to Thailand, but that was 25, 30 years ago. I don't remember. But yeah, it's an extra burden if you go through those countries. But it's also one that just puts you on the radar if you have been in Iraq or Syria or Iran or Sudan. I guess it's also Yemen or Libya and Somalia. That's it. It just changes the eligibility requirements for people who already are allowed to come into the country without a visa. It just now means you need to get a visa. That was it. Had nothing to do with banning. Had nothing to do with banning uh, refugees. And it is, I mean, I understand why Sean Spicer says this crap. Because he's working for a pathological liar and needs to work it out. But if you're not working for a pathological liar and you're promoting this stuff, you're either an idiot or you're also a liar. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So, I don't know, someone had, had, had sent me in, uh, a, a link to this guy, Seth Franzman. I don't know who it is. But it was really impressive how he, for whatever reason, I don't know why he would have done this. Maybe it was just laziness. Maybe he can't read. But he clipped the part of the legislation that said that isolated those seven countries without the first clause, which says if you are from a VWP country and travel through these seven countries. Yeah. I don't know who this guy is, but somebody had sent it to me uh, in the emails. And then I heard that other morons are are repeating this uh, thing. I can only imagine who those other morons are. Because this would actually involve reading the actual VWP uh, um, statute, which takes almost like 10 minutes. And that's probably nine minutes of Googling to find the link.
Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, who delivers fresh, perfectly portioned ingredients for great meals right to your door for less than the cost of eating out. The founders of Blue Apron saw a big problem with our current food system and set out to make a difference. Food waste in this country is absolutely out of control. Perfectly edible food is constantly being thrown away by grocery stores, restaurants, and even by us at home just because we bought food and then didn't eat it. It's an enormous waste of food and money. The key to Blue Apron is that there's practically no waste. They only send you what you need to make great meals, and everything gets used up. If you're ready to try it out for yourself, just a couple of the meals they're serving this month are noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs, and fresh basil and datterini tomato fettuccine. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com best. You are going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Let me play uh, the devil's advocate, or in this case, Trump's advocate here. Uh, he says uh, that they are not targeting Muslims, that uh, they're just targeting people from certain countries. How, uh, focusing for the moment on, on the U.S. citizens that are named as plaintiffs in your suit, how are, uh, how are their rights specifically being violated by this order or even by language that the, uh, that the administration is, is, is using as you see it? Well, the thing here that's really important to note, yes, we're talking about only seven countries. And by the way, after 90 days, we know that additional countries are going to be named as well. Um, but these uh, countries that were named are all Muslim-majority countries. And the order essentially provides a way for non-Muslims to enter under the executive order and not Muslims. And that is by claiming religious persecution. So just to highlight what I'm talking about, an mm-hmm. example, if there is a, a Syrian Christian green card holder and a Syrian Muslim green card holder, let's say they're both lawfully living in the United States together, they travel abroad, they both try to re-enter, the customs officer initially is going to tell both of them, you cannot come in because you're Syrian. When the Syrian Christian says, yes, but I'm fleeing from religious persecution, he enters. The Muslim says, I'm fleeing from religious persecution. He does not enter. And that's the reason why this executive order very clearly targets the Muslim community. There is no way under this executive order that a Muslim can enter the country. There there has been, of course, utter confusion, frankly, about the order since it was issued a few days ago, even among the administration and, and, the, and the federal agencies that are supposed to be enforcing it. But uh, you, you mentioned the uh, political asylum for religious uh, purposes, uh, th- those who are, have been religiously persecuted in their in their own uh, countries. Um, and, and there's this supposed exclusion that you cite, uh, you know, if they come from a minority religion in their country. Uh, how does CARE actually interpret that? And for example, would that apply to Shia Muslims versus Sunni Muslims, uh, you know, in a Sunni uh, in a Sunni majority country? Could could that uh, in- interpretation be used here, or or has has the administration made clear no uh, Muslim is Muslim and and that's that? Well, you know, a couple of things here. One is that Sunnis and Shias are 
two different sects of the same religion. Mm-hmm. Um, the language in the executive order specifically con- uh, pertains to religion, and not it doesn't offer sects to claim uh, persecution based on being a minority sect. It says minority religion. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, we have to look at the, the broader context, and that is that Trump and his own, you know, his own representatives, his, Giuliani recently uh, came out and said that Trump specifically asked him to look into a way to make a Muslim ban appear legal. So and there's been a lot of talk by the Trump administration, the Trump team, that their intent was to create a Muslim ban. And the result was not just a Muslim ban, but actually a full-scale exclusion order that's going to initiate the expulsion of Muslims that are lawfully residing in the United States. Forget the president's shadows are emotion. It's more than religion that created this commotion. Corrosion of humanity, divide and conquer. That's why you're looking at every Muslim like they a monster. You're misguided and blinded by those around you. Thinking every Muslim is evil and homicidal. My people, my brothers and my sisters, we are all equal. Humanities within us, we are from the same fans. Some are good, some are sinners, from the righteous to the killers. Only God can forgive us. For my Uma, my people, my brothers and my sisters, we are all equal. Humanities within us, we are from the same fans. Some are good, some are sinners, from the righteous to the killers. Only God can forgive us. The ban on entry for people coming from seven Muslim-majority countries, as well as all refugees, for at least three months, and for Syrians indefinitely, posed a test for how to go forward with a Trump White House. The people rose to the challenge in large numbers, surrounding airports across the country and taking to the streets in resistance. Lawyers mobilized to defend individuals trapped by the order as their organizations used every legal lever available to fight it on the large scale. Independent reporters dug in. Among many examples, The Intercept reported an immigration official's tale of how visas were being revoked in violation of international law, even in advance of the order, and a State Department employee's account of staff being kept in the dark. A piece by Ash McGovern at Rewire called out the largely overlooked malignity of the order's pretense of concern about admitting, quote, those who engage in acts of bigotry and hatred or those who would oppress members of one race, one gender or one sexual orientation, close quote. We have to be wary of such attempts to pit some communities' justice interests against others, they note, especially when the White House has no intent in furthering the rights of any of them. For some corporate media, though, old ways were in effect. CNN, for instance, uncritically adopted the White House label for Muslim nations caught in its ban, terror-prone countries. On at least three occasions, the network used the term without scare quotes or explicit reference to the Trump administration talking points, taking on the demonstrably incorrect and pejorative phrase as an objective descriptor. As several outlets have noted, since at least 1975, nationals from the countries Trump is banning entry from have killed zero Americans in terror attacks. For CNN to treat the ban as a rational response to a realistic danger makes no sense, but smearing entire countries as terror-prone will put immigrants from those countries at risk at a time when xenophobic hate crimes are on the rise. 
The New York Times ran an edition of its The Interpreter column that addressed the ban's legality. Columnist Amanda Taub and Max Fisher's conclusion, quote, The president has broad legal authority to restrict immigration. Under the Immigration and Nationality Act, he can restrict any class of aliens he deems detrimental to the interests of the United States without needing legislation or congressional approval, close quote. That's certainly not the conclusion of UC Irvine law professor and constitutional scholar Erwin Chemerinsky. His op-ed in the L.A. Times stated flatly, it's illegal to bar individuals from entering the country based on nationality. As for the act cited by the Times interpreter, Chemerinsky says Trump supporters point to that without noting that it was superseded by a 1965 statute. In fact, an earlier op-ed in the New York Times had included much the same thing, making one suspect that the paper thinks a judgment that the president is breaking the law needs to be labeled opinion. While neutral journalism says things like, the president has broad legal authority to restrict immigration. If the interpreter was a Timesian letdown, the ethicist was a poke in the eye. Just as many Americans searched their consciences for how to respond to this act of overt discrimination by the government, a reader wrote to the Times's moral advice column to ask what they should do about an acquaintance who admitted to them that she had married a U.S. citizen only in order to get U.S. citizenship. The response of ethicist writer Kwame Anthony Appia, he told the writer that they weren't obligated to report what you know, but, quote, it would be a good thing if you did, close quote. And he recommended an immigration and customs enforcement website that takes anonymous tips. Appia is himself an immigrant and had an argument about people unfairly jumping the queue, but it's impossible to sever this advice from the moment in which it's being offered. The same would apply, wouldn't it, to the estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. whom Trump has threatened to deport. Has your neighbor admitted to you that they don't have a green card? Or maybe you just suspect it. Why not anonymously report them to Homeland Security? The paper of record says it's a good thing to do, making it more crucial than ever to remember that you need not believe everything you read. take a moment though to because we're there's there's these seven countries and it affects permanent legal residents it has affected green card holders which supposedly they're reversing themselves on but we have some sound on that that i don't know if that's completely going away and then there's also the specific question about refugees now i see a lot of people online including people from the thought experiment crowd suggesting that there's some type of nuance to this conversation about refugees. Okay, let's do a line by line, and I'm going to quote extensively now from this New York Times piece because it's important. 
anybody who knows anything about refugee processing in the United States knows that we take very few refugees from Syria or anywhere else for that matter relative to just the size of our population and that it can be up to a two-year-long process. And I'm going to run through this write-up in the New York Times. So in other words, the Syrians that are getting sent back can't be processed according to this proposal, could be sent back to their death. And also don't forget the linkage of a anti-refugee policy across the Western world, which is coordinated with looking the other way on war crimes in Syria and sending people back into that zone. So let's be very clear about what this is. But this is the process by which somebody gets vetted to be a refugee in the United States. First, they need to register with the United Nations. Then they interview with the United Nations. Then the, re then the United Nations, if it goes forward, will grant a refugee status. Then there's referral for resettlement to the United States. So now I'm quoting, the United Nations decides if the person fits the definition of a refugee and whether to refer the person to the United States or any other country for resettlement. Only the most vulnerable are preferred, accounting for less than 1% of refugees worldwide. Some people spend years waiting in refugee camps. Then they're interviewed with State Department contractors. So if you're worried about, you know, that horrible, cuck, liberal United Nations there's real Americans that interview these people too. But I guess I'm sure that the State Department is some type of liberal conspiracy, Al-Qaeda as well. Then there's a first background check after that interview. Then there's a higher level background check for some, then another background check. And this is what this means. The refugee's name is run through law enforcement and intelligence databases for terrorist or criminal history. Some go through a higher level of clearance before that can continue. A third background check was introduced in 2008 for Iraqis that has since been expanded to all refugees between the ages of 14 and 65. Then, first, fingerprint and screening photo are taken. Second, fingerprint screening. Third, fingerprint screening. The refugees' fingerprints are screened against the FBI Homeland Security Database, which contains a watch list of information and past immigration encounters, including if the refugee have previously applied for a visa at the United States Embassy. Fingerprints are also checked against those collected by the Defense Department during operations in Iraq. Case review at United States Immigration Headquarters. Some cases are referred for additional reviews. Syrian applicants must undergo two additional steps. Each is reviewed by United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Refugee Specialist cases with National Security Indicators are given to the Homeland Security Department's Fraud Detection Unit. Extensive in-person in interview with Homeland Security. Most of the interviews with Syrians have been done in Jordan and Turkey. Homeland Security approval is required. Then there's screening for contagious disease, cultural orientation, uh, match with an American resettlement agency, and then a final security check at an American airport. That's the process they go through now. And that's the process that is apparently so weak and so vulnerable that we need to ban a religious group functionally, impose massive discrimination and undermine the constitutional stability of the United States. And to be clear, in Europe, which has its own immense xenophobia and rise of far-right parties and, of course, 
Chancellor Merkel and others were right to take many refugees because many refugees, of course, overwhelmingly are nonviolent, not implicated in acts of terrorism or anything else. But in Europe, it is literally functionally a different question because you do have people that just come across borders that are not vetted in the same way, just functionally and logistically. But anybody who could be in a position to come to the United States has gone through that process. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fight Trump's Muslim travel ban. The reality is that we are playing defense now, and that means that as activists, we must adapt in the moment much faster than I can alert you to what's going on. It's not the way we would want it, but there's no choice but to practice fast-paced reactivism as the Trump administration drops unconstitutional bombshells and blatant lies multiple times a day every day. Here at Best of Left, we've believed for a long time that simple online petitions don't cut it. We've always needed to work much harder than that to make the change we want, and that's never been more true than now. We have to make the effort to go to protest, make the effort to regularly donate to organizations fighting Trump's agenda, make the effort to seek out our local organizations and chapters and get involved on the ground. We must make the effort to be so plugged in that when the call comes to take action, as it inevitably will, we're ready and waiting. So now it may be up to the Supreme Court whether or not Trump's ban can be reinstated, but public opinion has been shown to have an influence on the court. So if you want to help the refugees trying to save themselves and their families and the immigrants seeking a better life, there is no simple answer, but here are some things you can do. You need to make the effort to call your representative and both senators in your state and show up at their town hall events to demand that they denounce Trump's Muslim ban. Even if they already have, you need to call them to back them up and let them know they are doing the right thing. You need to make the effort to find the local chapter of an organization near you that is working to help refugees and is working to fight the Trump Muslim ban. There are hundreds of these organizations, but we recommend starting with International Rescue Committee, which has program offices located in 29 cities in the U.S. where you can volunteer. Visit rescue.org to learn more and go to indivisibleguide.org to find other local organizations near you that are committed to resisting the Trump agenda. You need to make the effort to be in the know. That means signing up to receive email and text alerts from the organizations who are organizing actions and protests in your area. Even better, you can volunteer to help organize those actions. As a heads up, this weekend, the refugee organization HIAS is hosting a National Day of Jewish Action for Refugees with a large action on Sunday, February 12th in New York City's Battery Park and sister marches in cities across the country on Saturday and Sunday. Go to HIAS.org to learn more. And finally, if you can, you need to make the effort to donate to the organizations we've mentioned today and others, like the American Civil Liberties Union at ACLU.org and Doctors Without Borders at DoctorsWithoutBorders.org. 
We are committed to amplifying effective activism, and right now, with the incredible flurry of new resistance projects and efforts, we need your help to keep up. If you've come across an action or a new organization that is doing great work getting people engaged to resist the Trump agenda, please share it with us by emailing amanda at bestoftheleft.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if making sure America continues to open its arms to the refugees and immigrants that have built this country is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about fighting Trump's Muslim travel ban via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Trump and his cronies are waiting for us to get fatigued and roll over. So make a commitment to yourself right now and every day that no matter how many battles we lose, you will not throw up your hands and say the war isn't worth it. Justice is always worth it. So what are we gonna do? The next part of this, and I, th- I really think almost no one in this country understands that the courts have upheld the assertion from the executive that people basically don't have Fourth Amendment rights in airport interrogation. What do I mean by that? Now, you're lawyers. You may, you may take issue with some of what I'm saying, but they have a right to search all of your belongings. They've asserted the right to read any emails that they can access on your computer, to read your text messages, to download your uh, uh, the contacts on your phone. When we obtained at The Intercept in 2014 the government's 166-page rule book for watchlisting guidance, I, I just want to read you uh, part of this because I, I don't think people understand this is even before Trump and executive orders. This was under President Obama, and this is when they encounter you at a border. In addition to data like fingerprints, travel itineraries, identification documents, and gun licenses, the rules encourage screeners, meaning the people who are interacting with people crossing our borders or coming to our airports, to acquire health insurance information, drug prescriptions, any cards with an electronic strip on it, hotel cards, grocery cards, gift cards, frequent flyer cards, cell phones, email addresses, binoculars, peroxide, bank account numbers, pay stubs, academic transcripts, parking and speeding tickets, and on and on and on. All of this stuff, and this is directly quoting from the government's watchlisting guidance, existed under Obama, and the courts have actually said when this has been challenged, no, actually, they do have a right to do all of that, and they can hold you for an undetermined amount of time. It just says a reasonable amount of time. So if that was the the standard that already was on the books, and now we have these executive orders combined with open, overt, Islamophobic, bigoted rhetoric – where does that put us? Because no one seemed to be up in arms about this except a handful of civil liberties organizations, uh, uh, some journalists, and lawyers trying to fight this. And and it's great that the ACLU is getting nineteen million dollars in donations right now. But I was like, where were people when this stuff was going on for the you know since nine eleven? So I think people were very much there, and I think there are two things to recognize. Right, one is that generally 
in immigration law and at the border, the executive branch, the president, DHS, Customs and Border Patrol, do have a fair amount of discretion. And that has historically been the case. That doesn't mean that their discretion is unlimited, but you do give them some flexibility because you're trying to keep the nation's borders secure. At the same time— You don't get a lawyer there, though. No, right. you don't get the lawyer there. But but let me finish because I think it's important to keep in mind that discretion uh, can be abused or it can be used in ways that are useful, are reasonable, right? And so when you have policies that come into it, which do harm some people, and they definitely went overboard in some instances, there's no question about that. But if, in fact, Customs and Border Patrol actually asked every traveler coming into the United States for all of that information, you would not have international travel coming in through our airport. So there, there has to be some understanding of when these kinds of information is requested, right? Now, you're right. Most of the time, information was requested from people traveling from Muslim countries and was re- requested from people traveling from other third world countries. But there was always some kind of cap on that. Now you're in a situation where you have an administration that has an overtly hostile attitude towards a particular faith and towards particular countries. So that's got to filter down to CPB and make what was already a pretty tough policy even worse for people coming into the country. You know, my my assessment is, you know, Center for Constitutional Rights has been around for 50 years. And for the last 15, uh, we've been very deeply in the post 9-11 scenario. And we've been saying for a very long time um, under George Bush, under Barack Obama, and it's the same thing under under um, Donald Trump, is that it's not the person who is the president that is the ultimate problem, although we have a particularly problematic one these days. It's the power of the presidency and the power of the executive branch that is the problem. And so it was a much easier sell to get people to care under George Bush. It was virtually impossible to get people to focus on these issues under President Obama. And had we had more support for those issues, we might have been able to push back to limit some of these powers so that a crazy man like Donald Trump doesn't come in and deploy them and then have a range of folks who are very reasonable and rational say, but, you know, this is the power of the presidency. That's the that's the ultimate problem that we have here. I and, couldn't and, agree more with that statement. <laughs> and, 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 and look, I mean, I am I am so heartened to see the diversity and the numbers of people pouring into the streets going on their own volition to airports to both confront this injustice, but also to be there to welcome people when they come out and say, this policy doesn't speak for all of us. I mean, it's it's an incredible moment that we're in. But I also think it's a teachable moment that when we snooze or sleep during periods when someone like Obama is in power, who, you know, so many people identify with, they like him, they believe in him, they, you know, for a lot of people, the conscience is sort of checked at the door when the Democrats are in power. Of course, not for you guys, but that is a lot of what we're hearing now. Obama uh, picked up from where Bush and Cheney left off. Not, he, I don't think he took things in the insane direction they would have if they had eight more years in power, but he did a lot of disturbing things with exec- executive authority. And Trump is a product of that whole system.
We just heard clips today from the Bradcast, starting us off with a basic breakdown of the Muslim ban and its fallout. The Trumpcast explained why the ban is unnecessary and ineffective. Democracy Now! told the story of the acting attorney general who defied Trump's ban and was promptly fired. The Majority Report explained why Trump's ban is nothing like anything Obama ever did, contrary to popular myth. The Bradcast spoke with Lena Massery about the absurdity of denying the religious aspect of the ban. Counterspin explored some of the failures of the media in the wake of the ban. The Majority Report explained the 20-step vetting process already in place for refugees. And Intercepted discussed the many steps along the path for the past two decades that have brought us to this point. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, James Collins from Cleveland. Happy New Year, and uh, welcome to Post-Fact America. Last few weeks, I've been debating quite a bit with many people on the direction this country is headed, mostly with Trump supporters. And his whole Make America Great Again slogan that they seem to think is the be-all, end-all, and catch-all for where we need to go with this country. I find it amazing how they tell me that they want to make America great again. They want to go back to the good old days. Well, they get a little offensive when I start asking them, well, the good old days, do you mean when we had 30% of the nation's population employed and represented by unions? And they never seem to like to hear that. The other thing I like to bring up is that CEOs made quite a bit less in the good old days. So all this unfettered free market capitalism has got to go bye-bye. They also don't find comfort in that idea either. So I just, it's amazing that I could say I now know what cognitive dissidence looks like on someone's face when I start bringing these facts up. Um, On top of that, this whole idea of going back, going back, it, it prescribes to the entire conservative mindset And the problem is, the world has changed. The world has evolved. You can't go back there anymore because back there doesn't exist. And you can try kicking and screaming to drag us back there, but they're taking us to a place that no longer exists. And this is what amazes me. People just cannot wrap their tiny little minds around. I'm not saying myself or every progressive has every answer, But I certainly know that the more you're looking in the rear view, you certainly are not looking ahead to where the hell you're going. So anyway, Jay, in this new year, I am going to do my best to try to calmly open up the eyes of as many people as possible and trying to spread your show to as many people as I can. Keep up the great work. Hi, Jay. This is Benny. I just recently started listening to your podcast, and I'm responding to the Trump and the National Security State um, podcast. In it, you had a caller that talked about his, I don't know if you want to say conversion, or his um, change in, in viewpoint where he was conservative and then he became a liberal, and he emphasized that it's important that we don't uh, offend others. And then you talked about how um, the further left we move, it seems like the further away we would get from our conservative friends and family. Um, But 
ultimately, when we are anti-corporate, we can be united together. And I just wanted to share an example from my experience with my family. Um, I posted something on Facebook, uh, something about Melania Trump, how she still makes her, her clothes in China. Funny how Trump never mentions that. I can't wait till uh, the working people that voted for Trump realize that they were conned and he'll never win in 2020. Something like that. And my uncle, who is conservative, but also, like you mentioned, a lot of average people that are conservative are also very disillusioned with how money is buying politicians. Nobody in Washington is honest. Nothing is happening that actually helps the average person. And... So he got offended because I said that um, he was conned into voting for Trump. And I realize now that I shouldn't have been so forceful. I really do believe that Trump is a con man and that what he achieved was conning people into voting for him. He doesn't intend to actually help the working man or woman. Um, but that was too forceful what I said. And I just wanted to echo what that other listener had, had emphasized that we have to careful in how we approach the issue to not be insulting of other people, but to really find common ground. Thank you for all you do. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I actually have a pretty short response to to these uh, variety of comments about how to talk to or with or about or debate Trump supporters or voters or anything like that. Uh, We heard a couple today. I I received more than I had time to put in the show. And I realized as I came to my thought on how to respond to this, that this actually works well for liberals and progressives too. Uh, This is actually the way I think almost all conversations about politics need to begin in this day and age. And here's the answer. I'm going to skip right past the do you be mean to them or be nice to them debate. I I think that's obvious. If you want to feel uh, cathartic and good for a moment, then be mean. If you want to have a productive conversation or or even a chance of a productive conversation in which information has the slightest possibility of passing between you and entering into another person's consciousness, be nice to them because that's how humans work. But beyond that, here's the answer. Start the conversation By saying this, Trump and his policies are the wrong answers to many of the right questions. Because a conservative will hear that and they will think, if they are listening, oh, hey, you mean you're not dismissing out of hand everything he's ever said? You're not sweeping aside his criticisms about cronyism and the system being corrupt and all of that? You are open to some of those ideas? The answer should be yes. The system is completely messed up. Now, on the other side, if you're talking to a progressive or a liberal, it should open up a different but similarly interesting conversation. If you point out that Trump is the wrong answer to many of the right questions, that opens the conversation to discussing the ways in which Democrats and the left in general failed to address 
some of the fundamental questions about the fundamental problems with our system. And I don't just mean for this election cycle, I mean for the last 20 or 30 or more years. So what I would like to hear from you today is for you to try this out, try to have that conversation. Trump is the wrong answer to some of the right questions. Obviously, not all of his questions that he asks or criticisms he poses are right or legitimate. That's obvious. I shouldn't have to say that. But have that conversation with someone, someone you know, a new person, someone you agree with, someone you don't, doesn't matter. Try it out and then let us know how that conversation goes. I'd love to hear it. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And See past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past our own sad stories and forget who it is we're.